Let's pray this morning as we get into our message. You can open your Bible to the book of 1 John. You might think we're starting at 1-1, but we're actually starting in 5-13. We pastors like to do things backwards. So we're going to start with the last verses, and then we'll start over next week with chapter 1. Would you pray with me this morning? God, if there's anything you want me to hear this morning, I'm willing to listen. Can you pray that prayer to God this morning? Can you just say, God, if there's anything you want me to hear, I'm willing to listen. And God, I pray that you'd be glorified. I pray that everyone hearing this would be edified. I pray that Satan would be horrified in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got a lot to do this morning, starting a new series, How Can I Be Sure? Before we even get into that, I want to say it's the week after Easter. Easter, then what? The only problem with Easter is we make such a big deal about it. We do. We throw out a, a ton of lilies and we have all sorts of people come in, all sorts of special effects for our service. And the only issue is that a week after Easter, the lilies fade. I found this one here in the church and this is pretty pathetic, you know. A week after Easter, everything seems to have died. And you might be feeling the post-Easter blues this morning. But we don't mean to make it seem like the resurrection is the end of the story. It's all important because that's the power to forgive sins, but Easter doesn't end it all. I pray that you don't think that you prayed a prayer and received Christ and now you sit and wait and at some point Jesus comes back and takes us home. No, you're saved for a purpose, you're saved for a reason. And, and if you don't know what you're supposed to be doing now after Easter's done and gone, I encourage you to pay close attention this morning because we're not the only ones who dealt with the post-Easter blues. You know, I, I preached in John 20 last week, but the very next chapter, John 21, Peter announces to his friends, I'm going fishing. He, he decided he was going back to what he knew. He wasn't sure what to do. Yeah, Christ is risen. They'd seen him, but now he's thinking, but now what? So he tells his buddies, I'm going fishing. And you know what they said? We're going with you. <laughs> it's easy to want to go back to our old way. And it's easy to think that Easter is the end all. But you need to know that we've been called to a purpose. New life is the beginning of life, not the pause button until the rapture. So I want to encourage you today to be living out this faith. And that's why I chose to go to 1 John after the Easter special. The book of 1 John is incredible. Just by way of introduction really quickly, uh, I, I believe personally that it is written by the Apostle John. There's some people that don't think so. There's some people thinking that uh, maybe it was written by one of John's disciples or somebody close to John. But it's very clearly in the style of the Gospel of John. You've got the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that Apostle John, the one that Jesus loved, is the same one we attribute to the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. There's similar phrases and expressions, such as those found in, in some of the passages in 1 John and the Gospel of John. There's a mention quite often about eyewitness testimony, and we know that John was an eyewitness. The authoritative manner in which you would expect to come from an apostle, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation, are all written with authority. The description of heretics is antichrist, children of the devil, heretics, that's consistent with a, a son of thunder. John was strong in his language. 
And the indications of a close relationship with the Lord fit the description of the disciple whom Jesus loved and the one who reclined next to him. It it really doesn't matter uh, what you believe or what you don't believe about the authorship of the book of John. We do know that it's very Johannian in its nature and its writing. Probably written sometime between 85 and 95 AD, which means it's about 50 or 60 years after Jesus' resurrection. Why is that important? Because we're talking about Easter. Then what? (laughs) What's next? We know that it's been some time now. The the excitement has worn off. The lilies have faded, if you would call it that. And the church is now two, three generations in, and there's problems. Uh, Lethargy and heresy. Two problems for all churches. Lethargy, a lack of enthusiasm and energy, just going through the motions. And heresy creeps in. False teaching, false doctrine. And this is exactly what was happening at the time that the book of 1 John was written. We know that Gnosticism is the big problem in the church. Gnosticism. And that is a heresy. Uh, It talks about the human body which is made of matter, is evil. The spirit is only good. God is spirit. Only God is good. And so anything that's in the body is evil. The problem with that is uh, they denied the humanity of Christ. If they believed that, then they taught that Jesus could not have been truly human. Forms of it went out that some people believe that Jesus entered into, or the, the, the Son of God entered into Jesus at the baptism and left him right before the, the death. And that's just heresy. Jesus was fully God and fully man, but Gnosticism was making its way. It had a duality. And so because only matter mattered, then sin really didn't matter. Only the body was evil, and so they did whatever they wanted to. There was a dualism. The church was really messed up at the beginning of 1 John. You had some that had been brought up in the Jewish-type faith with rules, 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 and they felt pretty good about who they were and their standing because of their obedience. Then you had others who didn't care about what they did at all. They were living terrible lives of, of immorality, both in the same church. They didn't believe in sin. Others in the church believed everything was a sin. Oh, what a problem John had on his hands. So the purpose of the book of 1 John was to expose false teachers and false teaching and to give believers assurance of salvation. Who then can be saved? If some think that they're perfect and others think that it doesn't matter, you got a church that's all confused. That's why John writes with love the book of 1 John. So we come this morning to our series called How Can I Be Sure?, and not the song by the Young Rascals. I had Jim Bongiorno write me this morning asking me if this, the sermon series is based on us. I looked the song up. I didn't know what he was talking about. Come on, Jim. That came out in 1967. I wasn't even born yet. Well, I was almost born, but you know what I mean. How can I be sure? I looked it up. <laughs> it's not based on the old song. It's a It's about us knowing if we're truly a child of God. Last week I preached the Easter message, preached the resurrection, preached that you can be saved by asking God to forgive you of your sins and come into your life as your Savior and Lord. And I believe that is true. And yet I wonder how many people are confused about how can I know if I'm truly saved? So many people uh, could set a, a world record on praying the believer's prayer, praying the sinner's prayer over and over and over again as if it's an Olympic sport. Some people are baptized so many times they're they're soggy and and soaky with that weird skin that gets all sogged up. 
It's not about praying a prayer over and over again. It's not about dipping yourselves in the water of baptism. John wants people to know how can I be sure. I want you to be sure this morning. I'm not preaching this series uh, out of a bad spirit, but I I am wanting to comfort those who are unnecessarily troubled. At the same time, I want to trouble those who are unjustifiably comforted. That's a two-edged sword. And you're going to find that John often is struggling with the two-edged sword or two sides of the same coin. He's always trying to balance things. So this morning, if you're troubled and you're truly a child of God, you need to be comforted. But if you believe that you're saved and you're not, you need to be troubled. And I pray that God will point that out. I can't. God didn't give us any system of knowing just by looking at somebody who's saved and who's not. I often say this at camps when I speak. You can't look behind the ear of somebody and see a little light that that blinks green if they're saved and it blinks red if they're not. At that point, junior hires are always looking to find it and they don't understand. I'm just joking. There is no light. There is no way to look and see and tell if you're saved or not. I can't tell you if you're saved. This is between you and God. And so... John writes some things so that people can be sure. What's the big idea today? I know you're typing it right now as I speak. What's the big idea? Be sure you can be sure. Be sure you can be sure. 1 John 5, 13 through 18. Being sure is a wonderful thing. I thought about times that I've not been sure, and that's almost every day. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just don't feel confident about anything. I try to put on the air of confidence, but at times I just feel shaken. So many things have gone wrong that I've tried to put my trust in. One of the times I thought of this morning as I was driving to church, it just popped in my head a a trip we had in the last couple years. Uh, We went down to Frankenmuth, up to Frankenmuth. We went to the place that had the big water slide. Uh, uh, It's the one that you stand in a tube. They, They have a tube and you stand inside and then you put your hands across your chest. The guy counts to three and then the floor drops out and you shoot down through the tube. Well, of course, my son loved that. And, and here I go, I get in this tube and I see the tube and I start thinking, I don't know about you, but my inner voice starts talking. I start thinking about, what if I get stuck in the tube? I'm a big guy. What if I get stuck and the water comes and I drown in this tube? I'm plugged up. And I'm thinking those thoughts, and then i got to step into this false floor that's going to fall. And, and, and I'm thinking, will it hold me up? And I have all these thoughts. I'm not so sure about this. And, and you're going to drop straight down. I'm thinking, how far do I drop straight down? Is this, is this the gateway to Hades? I don't know where this is going. You can't see where it's heading. And so all these doubts creep into your mind. I remember slipping into that tube, holding on as best I could. And then the, the guy says, you gotta, you got you to gotta put your arms on your chest. I wanted to hold on. I wasn't confident. Then I thought, okay, he counted to three. I can at least do that. I felt like the floor was going to hold me. I got in that tube and finally I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be sure. And and I know the guy's going to count to three. I can take a deep breath. And the guy said, one, two, gone. Took the floor out from underneath me. I wasn't ready at all. Man, did I scream all the way to Sheol. I thought for sure I was dead. I thought for sure at some point I was going to clog up the tongue. I was scared. I remember thinking to myself, why is this fun? And of course, my son's reaction was, Dad, let's do it again. No, thank you. No, thank you. (laughs) I'm not sure about that. Well, I hope in this whole series, as we talk about the book of 1 John, that you can learn 
some confidence in the right hope. That you're not placing your confidence in foolish things. There's a book written by J.D. Greer that simply says, stop asking Jesus into your heart. You sound like that's wrong, but it's, it comes from the heart of a pastor saying, stop asking Jesus to come into your heart. Don't do it over and over and over again as if it counts on you and it counts on your sincerity. You need to have hope beyond a prayer that is said. I'm not knocking saying a prayer, but the prayer isn't a magic prayer. It's based on a true belief and confession of your heart. On the way to Camp Barakel up on, uh, I believe it's uh, 33 or 72, one of those highways, as you're getting close to the camp, somebody has erected a sign, nobody from Camp Barakel, but somebody with good heart and mind put a sign up on the side of the road. And as you're driving, you just kind of notice things. I see it every time I go up to camp. I look over and there's the sign. It's red, it has a heart on it. And the words simply say, Jesus, come into my heart. And I don't know what the thought was of the person who put up that sign. I don't know if they were thinking they were tricking everybody into heaven. I don't know if they were thinking the truckers are going to be smoking cigars and drinking beer, driving down the road, and they're going to say, Jesus, come into my heart. Boom! They said it! They said the words! I don't think that's what they were thinking. But every time I go by and read the sign, I think, how many times do people say a prayer, say words this morning? I want to say, stop asking Jesus into your heart as if you don't know that you're his child. I want you to have the confidence. So that's the big idea. Be sure. You can be sure. The key verse we're using this morning is right out of the last words of 1 John. 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's keep reading. That's the start of our passage for today. So I'm going to read 1 John 5, 13 through 18. We've already read verse 13. Going on, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If you see any brother or sister committing a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there's a sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. May God add his blessing to the reading of Scripture this morning. So in 1 John chapter 5, where we start this series, How Can I Be Sure? The first question we need to ask is, does God want me to know for sure that I'm saved? Do you think that God wants you to know, or do you think that he doesn't want you to know? Some people think he doesn't want us to know. It's like keeping us in line, or keeping us walking on eggshells or on thin ice. I mean, by all means, you would not offer a job to somebody and then guarantee them they could never be fired. In our thinking, you got to keep them working hard. If you promise them they can never get fired, they're going to be lazy. They're going to call in sick every day. They're not going to get any work done. That's our human thinking. And so I believe I've even heard people preaching this way, that God certainly wants you to be at least fearful of your eternity, that you just don't know for sure. You better act 
straight. You better act right. He's watching. But I want you to know this morning that I think John is trying to teach the answer to this question is emphatically, yes, yes. God does want you to know. God does want you to be sure. I write these things to you that you may know that you're a child of God, John says. How do we know this? There's two reasons why we know that God does want you to know for sure. Number one, God loves me. God loves me. In the Gospel of John, not the book of first or second or third John, but the Gospel of John 14, 18, it says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. God wants you to know that you're secure with him as your father. He's a good father. He's not going to abandon us. And so he tells us in Scripture that he will not leave us. He loves us. In John 14, 1 and 3, it says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to repair a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Do you hear our Father saying you're secure? You're secure. You can be sure He's a good father. He's coming back. When you love somebody, you want them to know. You don't get real love by threatening. You might be able to coerce, but you'll never to, uh, be able to capture a heart. So God isn't in heaven wanting you to be afraid, to doubting your salvation. God is a good father who promises you that if you're truly saved, he's coming back for you. He uses terms like a, a marriage proposal where he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's what a young husband would do. He'd prepare a place for his future bride. And when it was prepared, he'd come get her. See, he's using love terms. What good father would leave for a trip and say, listen, kids, I'm coming back or maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm going to go see my other family that you don't know about. Maybe I'm going to bring you some gifts when I come back, if I come back. Or maybe I'm not going to bring anything back at all, if I ever come back. What kind of a father would that be? And yet we place those thoughts on our Heavenly Father who loves us. And He gave us His Word to tell us that we can be sure and have confidence in who He is and what He's done through Jesus on the cross. That's our good Father. God loves me. Point B, God wants me to really love him. God wants me to really love him. 1 John 4, 18 through 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. What John's trying to teach here is that God loves you and he wants you to authentically love him. And that's not gonna come by dangling a carrot and you never knowing for sure. He wants you to know that he loves you. He wants you to know that you can have confidence and the hope is a blessed hope, a sure hope. God loves you. He wants you to really love him. John goes on in the next verses and talks about how can I know for sure that I'm saved? I believe the answer that God does want you to know is yes, he does want you to know. So how can I know? And we'll play this out over the next five weeks. But 
quickly today. How can I know? Well, John says a couple of things in this passage. I have placed my hopes for heaven entirely on Jesus. How can you know for sure if you're saved? Well, what are you placing your hope in? Are you placing your hope in a prayer that you said? I know many people grow up and they said a prayer when they were five or six and they become an adult and start wondering, did I really put the balance of my salvation in the hands of a five-year-old? And I'm not saying that God doesn't save people by prayer when they're five. What I'm saying is so many people have the wrong idea of what their hope is in. Your hope should not be in a prayer. Your hope has to be on Jesus, on Jesus alone. 1 John 5.13, again, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. If you put your hope in the name of the Son of God, do you believe? Do you go under His account? That's what I'm talking about today. You're going to meet a holy God someday who's going to want to know who's paying for the sin. Are you secure in letting God know that it's Jesus I'm in Jesus' name. I'm under Jesus' account. I've had a couple of times in life where I've gone to pretty swanky hotels. One time I was asked to speak at Parkside Church in Ohio, Alistair Begg's church for youth outreach. When I got there, they put me in a hotel near the church. And the guy who actually had booked me was a former student of mine. And he had told me, when you get to town, go to this hotel and uh, just tell him it's under Parkside's name. Boy, I pulled into the hotel and I was like, whoa, I'm out of my element. It was pretty fancy. I could tell it was pretty high dollar, uh, five-star hotel. I park my junky car and I, I go inside to the desk and I look around and you see that the surroundings let you know that this is the upper echelon and it is a nice place. And I remember going to the desk and they said, give me your name. And I said, it's not under my name. It's under Parkside. What I was saying is, I'm not paying for this. I had no idea what it cost, but I'm coming in under another name. And boy, they said, oh, you're Don Jackson. Yeah, Parkside has this. It's already covered. And they slipped the key to me. Oh, I went up to that room. One of those hotels that actually had that white robe. You know, the, the hotels I stay in don't have the white robe. You got to bring your own. But I was in a hotel that had the white robe and the little slippers. Oh, I remember calling my wife and, and showing her, saying, look at this, I, look at this, I got the robe and the slippers, and boy, I, I had it, living it large, but it wasn't under my name. I wasn't going to pay it. What about you? Where are you putting your hope on your entrance into heaven? Is it on you and your words? Is it on you and your actions? Or are you going in under the name of Jesus? That, my friends, is the only way you can get in. There's another verse, Leviticus 1 and verse 4 I want to point to. It's an Old Testament verse. It said, you are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. Apparently, in the Old Testament, when they were going to sacrifice the burnt offering, you were to put your hand on the head and it would transfer to you. It would be accepted on your account. Oh, friends, I don't, I don't want to be too anthropomorphic here, but have you put your hand on the head of Jesus? Jesus alone. Have you put your hope on his head because he went to the cross on your behalf. He became your sin and you become his righteousness. All of God's righteousness is now on your account. 
That's how one reason you can know for sure you've placed your hopes for heaven entirely on Jesus. Another way you can know for sure is that you have a new nature. A new nature. 1 John 5, 16 through 18. If anyone sees a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Oh my goodness, does this cause confusion. So many wrong theologies have come out of this passage about a sin that leads to death and a sin that does not lead to death. You need to know, any sin we commit that we are by grace capable of truly confessing and repenting from is forgiven. What is John doing? Well, I'm telling you what John's doing. John, like many pastors before him and after him, started to teach one thing and realized he needed to balance it. He started to make sure that, that those people that weren't worried about sin knew that they were sinners. And John was pointing it out. If anyone claims they have no sin, they're a liar. And the truth is not in them. But then John gets caught up in trying to explain what sin is unforgivable. He remembered Jesus speaking about an unpardonable sin. So what is this? John warns against misunderstanding that in a perfectionist way, as though Christians don't sin anymore. If we say we've no sin, we're a liar. On the other hand, we don't keep on sinning if you're born again. But on the other side, you never stop sinning in this world. John got into a little paradox there, a little trouble when trying to explain sin. He's got all sorts of people in his churches that don't understand Some think that they're perfect and they never sin, and some people don't even care about sin. They live terrible, immoral lives. He's got heresy that he needs to fix. And so what he's saying here, he's talking about the believer. He's talking about a believer is not constantly going to live in repetitive sin and not care about it. But at the same time, he's never going to stop sinning in this world. Oh, it's a hard thing to comprehend. But I do know this, if you're truly a child of God, you've been given a new nature. You no longer love unfaithfulness, dishonesty, self-glorification, and hatefulness. That's not who you are. You've got a new nature. Yes, we fall. Oh, the Bible says in Proverbs 24, 16, for though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. Oh, we as believers fall and stumble all the time. The Bible says seven times. That's a lot. In my house, we've got a little room off of our uh, great room. and The little room we call the east room. It's on the east side of our house. But the only difference in this little room is that it drops down about that far. Just a little drop. Maybe an inch or a little bit more than an inch. I don't know why they didn't build it just quite right so it would be even. But it's just that far down. When we have new people come to the house, we always have to stand by it and warn them. Be careful, it steps down here. And then when they're coming back through, we say, be careful, it steps up here. And it's every time somebody stumbles over that little step. I'll never forget my sister coming over. And we told her several times, be careful, but my sister, and Teresa, I know you're probably watching today. But, oh, she's, let's just say she's not a gym, gymnast or she's never going to go to the Olympics as uh, somebody incredibly coordinated. I remember my sister, after warning her several times, she caught her foot coming out of the room, which meant she stumbled on the lip. Oh, it's one thing to drop an inch you weren't expecting, but it's a whole other thing to be stopped at your foot. And oh, my sister stumbled. 
She stumbled and kept stumbling. It was the world's longest stumble. If I remember even saying words like, just go down, just go down. She was building up momentum trying to catch herself. She ended up crashing to the floor 20 feet from that little lip. Oh, it was a horrible crash. What would it be like if, if my sister stumbled once and we chuckled and she stumbled the next time and we got the phones ready for the third time and the fourth time she stumbled we had it filmed and the fifth time we, we posted that one to YouTube and, and it went viral and the sixth time, sixth time we start feeling pretty bad about posting it and by the seventh time she stumbles we're thinking there's something wrong. I think what scripture's telling us that the believer still stumbles in sin but that's not who he is. He might fall, but he gets up looking at Jesus. Oh, friends, I'm struggling like John. How do I make this clear? Can you still be a true believer and be living a life of sin? That's a hard thing to answer because John is saying both things are hard. I do know this. When Jesus comes into a life, it completely changes the life. It can no longer be the same. Oh, there might be a stumbling to the old life, but you can't remain in a habitual practice of sin over and over again and not care and claim that Jesus is there. We're going to hear that John says a lot about that. It just can't be true. I read about four guys living in a dorm room, and you know what dorm rooms are like. Not only did they live in a dorm room where they didn't do laundry, and they actually had a little kitchenette, and they never did dishes, and uh, their kitchen sink was kind of a Petri dish. Probably where the coronavirus came from is a college dorm room. We don't know. These four guys supposedly also decided to get a couple of cats. Oh, bad decision. When you walked into that dorm room, after weeks and weeks and weeks of them not doing their clothes, not doing the dishes, and the cats doing what cats do, it hit your nose and it would burn. About every month or so, one of the guy's mom would come. And the first thing she would do is napalm the whole place. She would set it straight. She'd take out all the disgustingness and clean it. When she was done, after many hours, uh, I've heard that it was said the place smelled like lemons and Ajax. And it would last for a while. The thought was given about this story that if I were to come to that dorm room on Sunday, and I walked in and it just reeked. You could smell the cat, you could smell the dirty clothes, you could smell the sink and what was growing in it. And I took a whiff and it almost knocked me down. And one of the boys said, hey, my mom was here yesterday and she cleaned. I would say, you're a liar. You're a liar. Your mom has not been here. I think that's what John's trying to get across. Yes, as believers, we're not perfect. We're growing in our relationship with Christ, and we might fall into sin. And each time we fall into sin, we get up and we look to Jesus. But it can't be our way of life. Because if that stench is permeating, the cleaner-upper's never been there. Oh, friends, I know what I'm saying today. I feel like John stumbling over this whole conversation about sin. I can't answer it for you, but I just know that if you're a child of God, you can't live a life of just willful sin, repetitive, unrepentant sin. Am I the one that makes the choice that a person is saved or not? Not at all. Am I judging? Not at all. I'm just pointing out what John is telling us. 
about sin. I believe when we look at 1 John chapter 5, the answer to the question is, does God want us to know? He does want you to know. He wants you to be sure. But you've got to be sure in the right things. Yes, there needs to be a time when you recognize you're a sinner and you ask God to save you and forgive you of your sins. But then there's a walking that comes. What's after Easter? What's after the resurrection? A walking. A daily walking in the life of Christ and a growing and a putting off of a sin and putting on righteousness. These things are crucial for the believer. So I urge you to ask yourself and examine yourself and to see if you're in the faith today. What are you basing your salvation on? Oh, you don't have to have a time and a date stamp somewhere where you say, this is exactly what I prayed a prayer. Or maybe you've prayed the prayer more than a dozen times. I'm not judging any of that. If you've gone in the waters of baptism as an infant and as a child and as a teenager and as an adult, I'm not judging that. What I'm asking you is today, right now, how are you walking? What is your life showing? And I want you to know that you put your hand on Jesus and claim his forgiveness and victory in your life over sin, you can be sure that you're saved because we've got a good, good father. I'm asking Christopher to come and close us. And we're all gonna sing this song, we've got a good, good father. I want you to know that God is good and that he does love you today. He's a father that says, I am coming back and I'm bringing good gifts when I come. And he gives you assurance If you don't have that assurance today, if you're troubled, I pray it's over the right reasons. If you're troubled and you've asked God to save you and you're confident that you put your faith in him, then be troubled no more. This morning, only you know what's in your heart. And if you need to ask us, contact one of your pastors, one of your elders here at Oakwood. If you're not from Oakwood, find a good Bible teaching church. But know that this has been settled. We know that it's been settled in history. Jesus did this for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you have that life today, be sure. If you're not sure, put your faith in Christ alone for salvation. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for giving us your son. And Father God, we claim today that you're a good, good father. It's who you are. We know who we are falling in sin, yet looking to Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.